So I went and got a beer, saw a friend, was talking to him for a while. And then I uh, finally came back into the arena and I saw uh, Owen Hart laying in the ring and my, asked my little brother, I was like, what happened? And he said, man, he was, he said they were going to lower him from the rafters and he just like dropped. And he said that, you know, he hit straddling the ring, the ring ropes and his head went forward and hit the turnbuckle. And he said it was just kind of like a mannequin. He just went stiff. And uh, when I was when I got in there, the medics were coming in, rushing to him and whatnot. And they're, you know, doing CPR. And everyone was just kind of silently watching. And um, the the big thing that sticks with me and uh, was, you know, they loaded him up on a gurney real quick and were wheeling him out. And uh, his arm just dropped to the side, just dead weight. And it's like, man, that isn't good. Welcome to Fatal Errors, the podcast about preventable disasters. Today's episode is part two of the Owen Hart story. If you haven't yet listened to part one, I recommend doing so first. You can find it in your podcast app of choice or at www.writemitchwright.com slash podcast. It's debatable when and how the general public became clued into the scripted nature of professional wrestling. What's not debatable is that through the 1980s boom period of the World Wrestling Federation, professional wrestling in all forms adhered to kayfabe, keeping up the pretense that all of it was legitimate. That meant wrestlers staying in character outside of the ring, heels and babyfaces not fraternizing between shows, even denying real-life romantic relationships if that's what the story called for. Kayfabe was broken once and for all by, who else? Vince McMahon. He was all for maintaining the fiction when it served the business, but as soon as Kayfabe threatened to cost him money, he threw it out the window. In 1989, Vince testified publicly that pro wrestling was scripted as a way of avoiding the regulation of the New Jersey State Athletic Commission, which, among other things, was responsible for monitoring and ensuring the wellness of combat athletes who competed within state borders. As a scripted entertainment and not an athletic competition, the WWF was not under the authority of the commission. Not for nothing, the classification also allowed the WWF to avoid paying certain taxes. Vince coined the moniker sports entertainment to refer to his product from that point on. And while the term has its own problems, it's not a bad way to categorize the hybrid nature of professional wrestling. The sports entertainment era kicked off at about the same time the internet wrestling community did, leading to the rise of a new breed of smart fan, who were just as interested in the backstage politicking and palace intrigue as they were in what was happening on their TV screens. Now that the WWF had let everyone in on the secret, storylines began to deliberately blur the line between fact and fiction. The worked shoot an angle meant to leave viewers wondering whether they had just seen the wrestlers go off script, became more and more common. Many of the most successful storylines of the mid-90s and beyond played off of this dynamic, none more so than the feud between the blue-collar everyman Stone Cold Steve Austin and his abusive boss, Mr. McMahon. After all, the on-screen character of Mr. McMahon was an obscenely wealthy, ruthlessly ambitious businessman who didn't care whose toes he had to step on to make a buck, while the real-life Vincent K. McMahon was an obscenely wealthy, ruthlessly ambitious businessman who didn't care whose toes he had to step on to make a buck. 
A weird thing happened around this time, though. Because everyone knew wrestling was fake, they began to assume that nothing they saw on screen was legitimate. Wrestlers started to perform ever more death-defying stunts. At the 1998 King of the Ring event, the wrestler Mick Foley achieved immortality by taking not one, but two devastating falls. The first, from the top of the cage through an announce table, at least had the benefit of being planned. The second was a chokeslam from his opponent, The Undertaker, which inadvertently sent Foley crashing through the roof of the cell to the canvas about 10 feet below. Whether it was the impact of the fall itself, or the metal chair that fell onto his head after he landed, Foley was knocked unconscious and lost a tooth. Somehow he finished the match. Well, of course he did. It's just a show. Vince himself did nothing to stifle this assumption. The company ran a commercial during the Super Bowl in January of 1999, announcing the Attitude Era to the world. The spot is pitched as a tour of WWF headquarters, in which the wrestlers hit each other with chairs, set one another on fire, and get it on in the office. At the end, Vince, standing outside the building, asks, Get it? It was a neat trick. If you worried for the safety and well-being of the wrestlers, you didn't get it. If you thought the show had become too sexualized, you didn't get it. If you thought the storylines could be hateful and even cruel, you didn't get it. What's wrong with you? Don't you know it's all fake? But here's the thing. The WWF didn't pretend to trot out its female performers to wrestle bra and panties matches for the titillation of a mostly male audience, any more than Mick Foley faked his fall off of that cage. And while your typical wrestling match can and should be perfectly safe for both grapplers, the physical toll was real. Historically, wrestlers have struggled with addiction to alcohol and painkillers, and cardiovascular problems from steroid abuse. So many pro wrestlers have died before their time that the concept of the dead wrestler is a cliché at this point. But for a sports entertainer in the late 1990s, there was not much of an alternative to going along with Vince McMahon's program. WCW was cratering after a brief spell on top. The WWF, meanwhile, was on a rocket ship ride, enjoying record ratings and revenues. Vince was not resting on his laurels. On screen, the character of Mr. McMahon took as much punishment as anyone, crashing through tables, bleeding from the face, and taking shots to the head from foreign objects. For most of the roster, it must have been inspiring to see that the boss was willing to get down in the trenches like that. How do you say no to anything that man asks you to do? Who knows if any of these thoughts were running through Owen Hart's mind as he ascended to the rafters of the Kemper Arena on May 23, 1999. Most likely he was just focused on getting through the stunt. As the masked Blue Blazer character, Owen was to make his entrance by being lowered from a catwalk 80 feet above the ring. Peering down at the ring so far below, nothing about the stunt would have looked fake to him. Owen suited up in his harness and climbed over the railing, ready to descend. Supported by just a single clasp, he dangled in the air eight stories above the ground. And then he fell. Viewers at home saw nothing. They'd been watching a video package about the Blue Blazer, and when the telecast returned to live footage, play-by-play -play announcer Jim Ross stammered about something having gone wrong, while the camera slowly panned across the crowd. However, on the Spanish telecast, the mics had remained on during the video. The audio clearly captures a thud, 
followed by the announcer exclaiming in Spanish, Oh no! Oh no! Mike Hoffman and his brother Joe were in attendance at Kemper Arena that night. They were cleaning up all the stuff during the hardcore match, so it wasn't like time for the next match to start or anything. Um, they were just getting everything cleaned up and ready for the match, and all of a sudden he fell from this, you know, fell from the rafters, and so it was just kind of shocked throughout the stadium. You know, it's WWF at the time, so people thought, you know, is this part of the show, you know? You uh, wasn't even sure if it was a real person at first. Owen had landed on the top rope near the ring post, bounced and landed in the corner of the ring. At first, he struggled to sit up, likely out of some animal instinct more so than a conscious effort, and then lay motionless with his eyes wide open. By a stroke of luck, the WWF had contracted with local paramedics that night to play a part in the show. The script called for Stone Cold Steve Austin to attack Vince McMahon with a chair, causing him to be taken away in an ambulance. The paramedics were still on site when Owen fell and immediately rushed to the ring. They were joined by two off-duty police officers who had been working security, and by Jerry the King Lawler, the color commentator. The first responders cut off Owen's mask and his boots and administered CPR. But Owen wasn't responding. His vitals were flat. Next, the paramedics intubated Owen and began to manually pump air into his lungs. Flat on his back, Owen continued to stare straight ahead. His skin took on an ashen pallor. At last, the paramedics rolled him onto a spine board and carried him to the back. The crowd applauded, although in Martha Hart's account, one fan was heard to shout, This is fake! It was pretty apparent uh, by the time I got in there that it wasn't, because, you know, just EMTs, there's probably like six, four or six EMTs surrounding them, and, and the way they were working on them, it was obvious it wasn't an act or anything. I mean, they are feverishly giving him CPR compressions and uh, yeah just is you could tell it was something had gone pretty bad dire as the situation was bureaucracy was about to make things even worse as mentioned the WWF had hired a very real ambulance as part of the show which was sitting backstage Owen was loaded into the ambulance as resuscitation efforts continued but there was a problem the ambulance was contracted to stay at the arena for the duration of the show. The company that had hired it out initially refused permission to transport Owen to the hospital, instead instructing the paramedics to wait for a second ambulance that had been dispatched. A crowd of enraged wrestlers was able to overrule that decision, and the ambulance sped off to the Truman Medical Center. Incredibly, once Owen was removed from the ring, the WWF chose to continue the show. Lawler, the quick-witted commentator who openly rooted for the bad guys and spent most of his airtime shrieking about the female performer's breasts, had returned to the broadcast booth. Uncharacteristically quiet, he said about Owen only, It doesn't look good at all. Jim Ross then threw the broadcast to a live backstage interview with Owen's tag team partner and friend Jeff Jarrett and his valet Deborah. Both are distraught and unable to make it through the promo without tears. Not for lack of trying. Deborah ends the segment by choking out a very off-script, Owen, we love you. Jarrett and Deborah then had to participate in a mixed-gender tag team match. As the show progressed, doctors were still fighting to save Owen's life. He had no heartbeat, but there was detectable electrical activity in his heart. It was rare, but patients had been resuscitated from such a condition before. 
Owen was given shots of atropine and epinephrine in an attempt to kickstart his heart. But with his body temperature dropping and still no responsiveness to any stimuli, the outcome was apparent to all in the room. At 8.12 p.m. Central Time, the doctors declared Owen Hart dead. Jim Ross relayed the sad news to home viewers, but no such announcement was made to fans in attendance at Kemper Arena. They never gave the crowd any kind of information regarding what had happened or his status or anything. Uh, we didn't find out he was actually dead until we uh, left. The show was over and we left. And that wasn't until we were driving home that we actually found out he had uh, died. The next night, the WWF had scheduled a live broadcast of their flagship program, Monday Night Raw. They paused their ongoing storylines for a two-hour tribute show dubbed Raw is Owen. It began with the WWF roster standing silently on the entrance ramp as a ten-bell salute tolled. The remainder of the broadcast consisted of a handful of wrestling matches with clean finishes, and none of the usual shenanigans like run-ins or ref bumps. It also featured shoot interviews with several of the wrestlers about their memories of Owen. Many of them recalled what a genuine and loving person Owen had been, his dedication to his family, and his propensity for playing practical jokes. In the final segment, Stone Cold Steve Austin came out to the ring for his patented double-fisted beer chug, toasting an image of Owen on the Titantron and leaving a can of beer in the middle of the ring for him. By WWF standards, it was a respectful and honestly pretty touching couple of hours. It was also the most dissonant example yet of the clash between reality and kayfabe. A man had died. The grief on display was real, and befitting the show's name, raw. But a couple of wrestlers were absent, allegedly to preserve kayfabe. And probably it wouldn't have been great to have a character named The Undertaker standing by for a memorial service. Then there was this. Raw is Owen was one of the highest rated episodes in history and remains so today. Within the cold calculus of the market, Owen's death was great for business. Owen's funeral was held one week after his death in Calgary. About 300 of his family and colleagues attended, while a crowd of about 1,500 fans gathered outside to listen to a simulcast of the proceedings. The mayor of Calgary was there, as was the premier of Alberta. Also in attendance, Vince McMahon and his family, who reportedly entered through a side door, in the process bypassing the viewing of Owen's open casket. Against Martha Hart's wish, the WWF aired footage of the funeral on the next episode of Monday Night Raw. The eulogy was delivered by Martha herself. Mixed within the remembrances, the bittersweet jokes, and the tears, she gathered her strength and delivered a pointed message to those in attendance. Martha Hart, quote, I'm a very forgiving person and I'm not bitter or angry, but there will be a day of reckoning, and this is my final promise to Owen, and I won't let him down. End quote. Two weeks later, Martha Hart announced her lawsuit against the World Wrestling Federation. The wrongful death lawsuit included 46 separate charges against Vince McMahon and the WWF, as well as the arena, the rigorous, and the manufacturers of Owens equipment. The charges included negligence and the infliction of pain and suffering, and sought damages for Martha and her family. Because of the circumstances of his death, Owen had been autopsied by the Kansas City Medical Examiner. 
The results would be crucial in determining whether the defense would be able to argue that Owen bore some of the responsibility for the accident if he had been impaired in any way. The autopsy detected no trace of alcohol or drugs in his system. It confirmed the cause of death as blunt force trauma to the chest, which had sheared the aorta from Owen's heart and caused his lungs to fill up with blood. Additionally, Owen had suffered a non-fatal injury to his left arm. He had not incurred any head or neck injuries, however, which left open the possibility that he was conscious for several minutes after the fall. The investigation turned up one shocking fact after another. Owen had been attached to a buckle made by a company called Lumar, a British manufacturer of nautical equipment. The lone clip supporting Owen's weight 78 feet above the arena floor was designed to hold sailboat masts. Representatives for Lumar were stunned that it had been used in a stunt. They pointed out that its very function was to release quickly. In other words, it released Owen not because it malfunctioned, but because it was doing exactly what it was supposed to do. Then there was the rigor that the WWF had hired out of Orlando, Bobby Talbert, who claimed to have worked with WCW's Sting on similar stunts before. In fact, Talbert had assisted WCW's full-time stunt coordinator on just a handful of occasions, and had never been chiefly responsible for the maneuver. Further, it transpired that Sting was always hooked up to a redundant system of locking carabiners, as was standard, and had been able to practice for months from lower heights before ever descending from the rafters. Owen's situation couldn't have been more different. As time went on, Martha released several parties from the lawsuit, keeping her sights on Vince McMahon and the World Wrestling Federation. She believed it was their rush to perform the stunt and corner-cutting on costs that had caused Owen's death. The WWF may have been cheap when it came to performer safety, but they had deep pockets where it counted. Their legal representation was excellent. Because Martha was intent on taking the suit to trial, the WWF's lawyers used every delaying tactic in the book. Martha also had to contend with certain members of the Hart family who wanted to work their way back into McMahon's good graces to keep their employment prospects open, and who would forward sensitive information to McMahon's attorneys. The longer all this went on, the more unappealing it became. Only by putting a number on the table for a settlement could the plaintiffs force the case ahead. The number they proposed was $32 million. The WWF countered with $17 million. Partly due to fatigue, and partly due to a desire to move forward, both sides came to the table and negotiated a final settlement for a reported $18 million, never confirmed by the plaintiff. Martha had wanted her day in court, but instead she would try to rebuild her shattered life along with her two children. The Over the Edge broadcast was never commercially released. In 2014, it was added to the WWE's streaming service with all of the references to Owen and the accident neatly edited out. Not just the portion immediately after the fall, but Jeff Jarrett and Deborah's stumbling interview, the Blue Blazer video packages, all of it disappeared Soviet-style, like it was never there. The only mention of Owen comes in a graphic at the beginning, which reads, in memory of Owen Hart, who accidentally passed away during this broadcast. Somehow the inclusion of accidentally makes it sound so much worse. Owen's memory is cherished by the fans and by many of the wrestlers themselves. For example, the wrestler Kevin Steen chose his WWE ring name of Kevin Owens as a tribute to Owen, 
And if that weren't enough, Steen also named his firstborn son Owen. Twenty years on, Owen is not forgotten. Owen Hart has not been inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame, and probably won't be. His widow, Martha Hart, has never forgiven Vince McMahon and his company for Owen's death and refuses to work with them in any capacity. With funds from the settlement, Martha established the Owen Hart Foundation, a charitable organization dedicated to helping hard-working people who have limited resources and unlimited potential. Since its inception, the Owen Hart Foundation has given out more than $4 million Canadian in scholarships and homebuyers' assistance. After Owen's death, Martha returned to school, eventually earning her PhD in social and developmental psychology from the University of Cambridge in England. Dr. Martha Hart has authored numerous peer-reviewed papers about child development and family dynamics. She remains unmarried. Oge and Athena are now in their 20s. They are not wrestlers. Bret Hart retired from in-ring competition after sustaining a concussion during the 1999 WCW Starcade pay-per-view. He eventually reconciled with Vince McMahon and worked for his former boss throughout the aughts, continuing to make appearances for the company. In 2006, Bret was inducted into the company's Hall of Fame as a singles performer, and then again as part of the Hart Foundation tag team, along with his late partner Jim Neidhart, in 2019. In March of 2001, the World Wrestling Federation bought out its fiercest rival, World Championship Wrestling, and has not faced serious competition since. The next year, the company officially changed its name from the World Wrestling Federation to World Wrestling Entertainment and has henceforth been known as WWE. Vince McMahon remains chairman and CEO of WWE, which today is valued at about $6.5 billion, of which McMahon's stake is worth more than $3 billion. In 2018, the company reported record revenues of $930 million. WWE superstars, as its wrestlers are known, are still classified as independent contractors. Since Owen's fatal fall, there have been no other deaths within a WWE ring. But wrestlers who have worked for Vince McMahon continue to die young. This is a partial list of current and former WWE performers who have died from heart failure, drug overdose, or suicide since May 23, 1999. Yokozuna British Bulldog Davy Boy Smith Mr. Perfect Miss Elizabeth Road Warrior Hawk Crash Holly Big Boss Man Eddie Guerrero Mike Awesome Bam Bam Bigelow Sensational Sherry, Chris Benoit, Test, Umaga, Chris Canyon, Lance Cade, Luna Vachon, Viscera, Sean O'Hare, Axel Rotten, Balls Mahoney, China, Brian Christopher, Ashley Massaro. Not one wrestler on that list lived to their 50th birthday. Statistics like that make you wonder. Who will be next? Fatal Errors is researched, written, and narrated by me, Mitch Kirpata, and features original music by Dylan Lane. To donate to the Owen Hart Foundation, visit www.calgaryfoundation.org. That's www.calgaryfoundation.org. Thanks for listening.
Until next time, stay safe.